blessing is that sometimes it's really nice to have a mask on. Has anybody experienced this where you're just like, oh, what? you know, it's, it's usually really inconvenient to be wearing a mask. And you're like, oh, this really stinks. It fogs up my glasses or it's, it gives me headaches or whatever. There's sometimes it's just, I'm really glad I was wearing a mask during that. Uh, whether it's like something embarrassing was said or something awkward happened and you could hide your emotion a little bit behind your mask. Sometimes it's kind of nice to have a mask on. And I, I just kind of discovered that a little bit this week. And it got me thinking a lot about this passage that Brian just read. Uh, a lot about the secrecy that Jesus is having about his own identity here. But before we get to that, let me tell you a story. When I was a kid... I loved Batman, and I still do. I think Batman's awesome. I have a Batman mug on my desk. And, but I, when I was a kid, I loved Batman. And Kevin's got a picture here, I think, that he can show of me when I was a kid, uh, dressed up as Batman. Um, I thought you might enjoy that. So when I was a kid, I used to put on this Batman costume, just like a cape that kind of goes over your head and a mask. And I would run around sneakily and... Uh, pretend to be Batman, but I really didn't like it when people looked at me or like gave me that, oh, you're such, you're such a cute kid smile. You know, like, I, don't give me any attention. I'm Batman, right? Like, take me seriously. And so I was trying to like not make this a big deal. Problem is there was one famous time where I was running around sneakily being Batman and I threw open a, a big swinging door, and the door shut behind me faster than I thought it would, and it caught my cape in the door, and I just went flying and stopped. And everybody turned and looked at me and kind of laughed, and my secret Batman days were over at that point. I was found out, and I couldn't be Batman anymore. So that superheroes like to keep their identity withheld, kind of like how I did as a kid. I mean, you watch any superhero movie, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, whatever. It's like one of the biggest underlying plot lines is keep your identity hidden, right? And we're coming to a turning point in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is not keeping his identity hidden anymore. He hasn't really been trying super hard, but he's been going out of his way several times to say, don't go tell anybody about this. Have you noticed that in the first eight chapters? So we're continuing on in our series in Mark, and Mark 8 is a drastic turning point in the narrative of the story of the Savior. From this moment forward, the whole story of the Savior takes on a drastically different tone. And part of the reason is the identity of Jesus is becoming clear to everybody. And again, he hasn't really hidden it super well. He's been healing people. He's been raising people from the dead. He's been healing blind people. He's been going around teaching deep things about the kingdom of God that no one has ever heard before. And so, again, he's pretty much making it clear that he is the Messiah. But today, you're going to start to see clearly what it's all about. So we've been going through several weeks of who is Jesus? Jesus, the fill in the blank. And so if you look back at the last seven, eight, nine weeks, that's what we've been looking at. Last week, it was the exposer. Let me just read all these, actually, that we've done for the first several weeks since the new year. Jesus, the good news. Jesus, the caller. Jesus, the forgiver. Jesus, the brother. Jesus, the sower. Jesus, the grower. Jesus, the lover of our soul. Jesus, the essential. Jesus, the exposer. 
this week, Jesus the Christ. That's the turning point of the story of the Savior. This week, Jesus the Christ. And we're going to be marching towards the cross together as we get closer to Easter Sunday in the next couple of weeks. So in this turning point in the gospel, between uh, chapters 7 and 8, Jesus, uh, actually, as we get into chapter 8, kind of the middle part of chapter 8, Jesus heals this blind man, and then it says he takes them up uh, in verse 27 into the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And what, one, one thing I don't want you to miss here is he, this is 25 miles between where he was when he healed the blind man and when he goes to Caesarea Philippi. And it's up a mountain. And one scholar helped me out this week. He said, don't miss this. He said, 25 miles up a mountain. And he sits him down. And then he has this conversation that we're about to dive into. 25 miles, they're looking up over uh, the Jordan Valley below. They're probably up on Mount Hermon somewhere. And Jesus has just opened the eyes of the blind man. And now, don't miss the fact that he's just made this blind man unblind. He can now see. And now he's going to do the same for his disciples, though with spiritual eyes. So if you look at the previous story, Jesus, you know, tries to heal this blind man first. And he, he rubs spit on this guy's eyes and mud. And he, the guy's eyes are opened up. And Jesus says, what can you see? And the guy says, I can just see people, but they kind of look like trees, which people don't look like trees. So that's Jesus is like, okay, you're not fully healed yet. I need to do a little bit more work. So then he does some more things. And then the man says, yes, I can see clearly now. It's this two-step progression. And we're about to see the same thing happen for the disciples, though not with physical sight, but with spiritual sight. So watch that progression as it unfolds here. Jesus asks them two questions right off the bat. Who do people say that I am? And then he asks, who do you say that I am? What's the world's opinion of me? What's your opinion of me? May those be questions that we're asking ourselves today as well, that Jesus is asking you today as well. Many skeptics or people that are not Christians will say that Jesus never explicitly says that he is God in the Bible. That's one of their go-to comments. They'll say, Jesus never really said he was God. He's a great teacher. He's a prophet, but he never really explicitly said he was God. And this is a passage where I think you can make a pretty firm argument on the other side. And that's what we're going to get into to begin today. C.S. Lewis says, you can call Jesus a lunatic, like someone who says he's a poached egg. That's what C.S. Lewis says. Imagine if someone came up to you and said, I'm a poached egg. It's a pretty good indication that they're a lunatic. So C.S. Lewis is like, you can either say Jesus is like that, or you can say Jesus is the devil, which some of the demons or the Pharisees have tried to point out in Mark. But C.S. Lewis says you can never say he's just a moral teacher. You can't. And Jesus is going to make that clear today. He says, I'm not merely John the Baptist. I'm not merely Elijah. I'm not just one of the prophets. I am the Christ. So two questions we're going to look into today. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? And what does it mean to live the Christ life? What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? And what does it mean to live the Christ life? Both for Jesus and for those that take on his identity as 
Christians as little Christ. So the first question, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? So just beginning right here from the very beginning, we're going to look into this in detail. These first two verses, verses 27 and 28, where Jesus, where, where they ask him, who do other people say that I am? And he says, John the Baptist and um, Elijah or the prophets. We're going to save that for next week. Because next week we're going to look at a passage where Jesus is kind of in this uh, in this glorified state and being in comparison to some of these other great prophets of old. So we're going to save that for that conversation for next week in chapter 9. But the point here that I want to get into is what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? So let's dive into this a little bit. Because I don't hear many people today claiming to be the Christ. It's kind of a term that's been lost in our modern day world. So again, I, I did some really hard thinking on this this week. Think of something in our culture and society that's always talked about, but's never actually been fulfilled or realized. I had a real hard time trying to think of one example of something that everybody in our culture is longing for, but's never actually been fulfilled. Because if you're a Jewish person 2,000 years ago, that's what this would have been like. Everybody was longing for the Christ to come, and it had never actually fully been realized. It had never been fully realized, and Jesus is actually claiming now that it has been. Jesus does not deny that he is the Christ. This goes all the way back to Genesis 3, when God is saying, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He's talking to the serpent. He's judging the serpent who's just led them astray. And he's saying, the seed of the woman will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent is going to bite the heel of this offspring of the woman, and this this coming uh, one is going to bruise the head of the serpent, of the evil one. Right there, from the very beginning of the Bible, there's this expectation that someone is going to come and make the evil in the world go away forever. Going to end death. Death is going to be destroyed. Sin is going to be destroyed. Evil is going to be destroyed. From Genesis 3, that expectation is put out there. And then you go all throughout the Old Testament and it keeps pointing ahead to this seed or this offspring of the people of God that's going to come. He's going to come. Coming from this kingdom of Israel that's been been brought about by Abraham. It's going to come about through the line of Judah, this specific tribe within Israel. It's going to come about from this kingly line, from David. He's coming. Just wait. He's going to be coming. The prophet's saying, you're in exile. I know this looks terrible, but he's coming, I promise. And finally, all this leads up to the New Testament. In Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Christ. There you see it. There it is. Mark 1. Christ. And then you don't see the word Christ again in the whole book until right now. Eight chapters in turning point in the Gospel of Mark. So the the word Christ is used in the Gospel of Mark five times, but they're all after this passage, except for that very first verse. And it's important to know, Christ is not the last name of Jesus. Christ is the divine title of the one who's been expected to come to make all things right for the people of Israel and for the whole world. So Christ is the expected one, the rich title of the one who is going to deliver Israel from the oppression of opposing empires. The word Christ means anointed one. 
So if you look at kings in the Old Testament who were anointed for divine purposes, that's part of what Christ means. It's one who would be anointed like a king had been anointed in the Old Testament. One who would be not just bringing about the kingdom like Jesus has been doing, bringing about the kingdom of God, doing kingdom work, healing people, doing signs, but actually is the king himself. He's anointed as the king of the kingdom. Also, you use these other words. Maybe your version has Messiah or Savior. This is the story of the Savior, after all, right? That's what we've named this entire sermon series, the story of the Savior. Jesus is presenting himself as the rescuer of God's people. And ultimately, this Christ word climaxes when Jesus is standing before the high priest a couple of chapters later in Mark 14, and the high priest, the one who's overseeing the religious, obser- religious observances in Jerusalem, looks Jesus square in the face and says, Are you the Christ? And Jesus says, I am, and you will see me descending on the clouds with the glory of the Father. And the high priest says, Blasphemer, you will be put to death for what you just said. Jesus is the Christ. And he goes on to say twice in this passage as well, look at verse 31 and then verse 38 in in chapter 8. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Which, first glance, you're like, aren't we all a Son of Man? Yes, we've all been born of a father, a human father. So we are all son of men, right? But for those of you that have been doing our Daniel Bible study on Wednesday nights, you should have an extra insight into this passage. Because in Daniel 7, there's this grand image of one like the son of man coming to rule over the nations. Again, it's this dream that, the, that Daniel is having of one that's like the son of man coming to rule over the nations. And he's not just an ordinary human. He is a divine, kingly authority. The Son of Man. So when you and I read Son of Man, we're like, I kind of miss it. But for a Jewish person reading Son of Man and someone claiming to be the Son of Man, you're seeing someone who's claiming to be the person who was in Daniel 7, who's coming to have authority over all the nations, who's coming on the clouds to vindicate Israel after a period of suffering and to bring hope and glory to Israel. So today in our world, talking about identity. So again, it's one thing for Jesus to say, I am the Christ. It's another thing for him to actually be the Christ, right? Again, I could stand up here like C.S. Lewis said and say, I'm a poached egg. And I would look like a lunatic because I would be because I'm not a poached egg. But I could say it, right? In our world today, it's pretty easy to identify as anything you want. Identity is part of our politics now. It's just an assumed thing. You can, you can identify as you wish in a secular culture like today. And so politically, you're, you're saved by that, by how you identify. But this was not the case in Jesus' day. So again, I, Stephen, could identify as a number of different things today and not be you know, in trouble for that. But for a Jewish person in the first century to be identifying as something other than what it just looked like face value he was. Jesus was the son of a carpenter. How can he be the Messiah? 
for him to claim that was a much bigger deal than maybe how we look at it today. Right? So Jesus is identifying deeply as the Savior, as the Messiah. So that's what the Christ is. That's, that's the answer to the first question. What does it mean when Jesus is saying that I am the Christ? And why is it such a big deal that Peter is saying that? This is why. Because Jesus is coming out and saying, I'm the hero of the story of humanity. I'm the Savior. And watch what's about to happen. So again, just think about the disciples. They're getting excited. They're like, we're one of the 12 that gets to be with the Messiah. He's about to do something amazing. He's going to get an army. We're going to march into into the the empires and take over Rome. We're going to set up the temple again. And Israel is going to be the best empire in the whole world. And this is going to be amazing. And then the next part of this passage happens. What does the Christ life look like for Jesus and for us who want to claim to be his followers, to be little Christ, to be Christians? What does the Christ life look like? This is Christianity 101 that we're about to enter into, or Discipleship 101. So let's take the next 10 minutes and get the basics of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, because this is as plain as it gets. Verse 32, Jesus says, it says, he said this plainly. That's how my version says, or he says this very clear, basically saying, I said this boldly, nothing's blurry here. I'm not saying this in parables or in rhyme or in metaphor. This is just plain. Take it like it is, Jesus says. And what has he said? Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Those are the three things that Jesus says. And then he says, and then I'll rise again. But I think by the time he said the fourth thing, I'm going to rise again, I think the disciples had already lost it. I, think they don't, I don't even think they were listening by that point anymore. I think they heard those first three things, rejection, suffering, and death. And I think they just began to panic by that point. I think they just, I don't even think, I think their ears were closed by the time he said, I'm going to be resurrected and rise from the dead. They said, wait a second. I thought you were coming to make things better. That sounds a whole lot worse. That sounds like losing to me. So what does it mean to be follower of Jesus? What does the Christ life look like? Let me give you just a couple of things this morning to take with you in Christianity 101. The Christ life means to be a fool. To be a fool. Jim Elliott was a missionary to Ecuador, and he went to take the good news of Jesus to a remote village, kind of like an unreached people group we prayed for earlier today. And he has a famous quote, and I think there's a slide for this too to put it up there. It says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott gave his life so that the gospel would be made known to this people in Ecuador. He gave his life. Because he knew he couldn't keep it anyway. But he gained life with Christ and eternity with him. Jesus is asking his followers to be fools in the world's eyes. Paul says this too later in 1 Corinthians. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake. And again, if people that are coming in from the outside that know nothing about what Jesus teaches and they see the kind of life that Jesus is asking us to live... And if they see the church 
living that way, they're going to say, you're a fool. What are you living for? The God who raises from the dead, who asks you to lay down your life and take persecution and suffering and rejection and be marginalized? That sounds like a fool's errand. And Jesus said, yeah, it does. My wife and I and kids went for a drive yesterday, a Saturday morning drive, because I guess we're getting older and that's what we do now. We were just saying, that's, we, we remember doing that with our parents when we were kids. And it's like, I think this is the first time we've taken a weekend drive. I guess this is what you do when you have kids. Um, so we went for a drive yesterday along the water, just in some beautiful areas in our region. And we started seeing some massive houses, just huge mansions on the water. And, and we started doing the math. It's like, okay, we paid such and such for our house for such and such square feet. <laughs> and you start, you, you, let, you let your mind go there mathematically. Okay, if we have this many square feet and we paid this much, that looks like at least 50 times as much space. So 50 times what we paid for, that's a lot of money for that house. And then I realized the place where we were driving I could, I could name on one hand the amount of churches that are faithful gospel-preaching churches in that town. And I said to myself, look what all they have, and the likelihood of them being a follower of Jesus is microscopic. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus is asking his disciples to lose their life so they can be found in him. Again, these, this is just plain teaching. Lose your life for my sake and the gospels and you'll save it, verse 35. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? And our fun Saturday afternoon drive turned into one of lament because I started praying for these people of, they had the whole world, yet their soul is probably forfeited unless someone brings Christ to them and they receive him and lose their life. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a lot of different examples. It's not just about big houses. You could have no house and forfeit your soul. But this is one example. Be a fool. This next one I can give you here is be a loser. That's one way to put it, to put it bluntly. I almost named this title, the title of this sermon, Jesus the Loser but I thought that might be misconstrued or taking it a bit too far. But Jesus is basically saying, if you want to follow me, lose. Lose yourself. Jesus is like, I'm going to lose my life. In the world's eyes, I'm going to be a loser. And I'm going to ask you to be a loser as well. This is what the Christ life is, a life of suffering, a life of rejection and death. Charlie Brown says, Charlie Brown. Yeah, I'm using Charlie Brown in a sermon. Winning ain't everything, but losing ain't anything. Winning ain't everything, but losing ain't anything. No one likes to lose. Why would you join a religion that says you got to lose? You're going to be marginalized? No one likes to lose, but this is what we're invited to. Again, the disciples thought Jesus was going to come and set up a grand kingdom and a physical empire and, and just make this thing very visibly clear. And this is why they start rebuking him. This is why Peter comes back and says, may it never be. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. This is the guy who just confessed that he was the Christ. 
And he says, get behind me, Satan, because you're not setting your minds on things of God. You're setting your mind on the things of men. What does it mean to set your mind on the things of men? To think you have to win all the time. Jesus is saying, set your mind on the things of God. So let's set our mind on the things of God for these last two points. Verses 34 to 38, Jesus invites us into the Christ life. And I'll give you two more things to take with you. To live the Christ life means to be hidden in Christ. To have your life covered and hidden by being with Christ. He invites us to lose our life, which... Think again, think about how hard it is to intentionally lose something. Have you tried to intentionally lose something before? There's really only two ways to do it. One is to destroy it, to smash something into a million pieces, which if you're talking about your life, that means killing yourself. Jesus is not telling his disciples to kill themselves. That's never the the option. But if you're trying to intentionally lose something, that's one option. So the second option really is the only other way to do it. How do you intentionally lose something? Again, think about if you had like a quarter and you're trying to intentionally lose a quarter, just trying to, I'm not going to find this ever again. You can't just go hide it somewhere because most of us will remember where you put it if you're intentionally saying, I'm trying to hide it. To lose something, you have to throw it into something much bigger and preferably something that's moving like the ocean (laughs) or a river. That's how you lose something. You throw something and you throw it into something much bigger than yourself and something that moves, that takes it away to a place that you can never find it again. Now apply that to your soul, to your life. Jesus invites us to hide ourselves in him, to be found by him alone. Colossians 3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He invites us to throw our life into his life, into his movement, into his living spirit, so that we don't see our life anymore, but we are lost in his beautiful life. That's what Jesus is offering us, like throwing ourselves deeply into his life, the life alone that he can offer. And the last point is he's offering and telling us to freely carry a cross. The only one that he can truly carry, he's going to take the ultimate cross, and he's going to show that to his disciples in just a few weeks' time, but he invites us to walk with him unashamedly carrying a cross on our back as well. Again, to, to go to a cross would have been the most shameful way to die in an ancient world. This is the first time Jesus is introducing this to his disciples, this idea of dying on a cross. And can you imagine how sad that would have made them feel? Jesus, you're not just going to die, but you're going to die that way? With that much shame? That much agony? Yes. And so will you, Jesus says. You're going to carry a cross in your life as well. This is what it means to be a follower of me. is to live a life of joyful obedience, and worldly shame to look like a fool, but to gain everything in the process. You can do it with freedom because you're not the Christ. There is one Christ. Jesus is the one Christ in the whole world. You and I are not the Christ. We're not the savior of our story. 
Jesus is the savior of the human story. And that gives us freedom because we can follow him. We're invited not to a leisurely walk through life, but a walk into danger, into rough trails up high ravines, crossing through rivers that will reach up to your neck, but will never overcome you because Jesus is with you. It's a walk that will ultimately guide you where no one else can, no other guide, no other path, to redemption, to peace, to rest, to beauty, to forgiveness, to salvation, to life, to eternity. This text in Mark 8 is the turning point. History will never be the same. There is only one Christ, and we don't have to be the one Christ. Let me finish with this illustration. I read this week that uh, many of you may remember the name Terry Bradshaw. He was a quarterback back in the 80s, 70s and 80s, for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And one time he went to a hospital to have a surgery done, and he decided to use a pseudonym, which is, he used a different name because he was very famous and didn't want people to you know, know who he was. And this was back in the 80s, well before the name I'm about to give you was even known. But guess what the pseudonym he used at this hospital was? Tom Brady. <laughs> he checked into a hospital and said, hi, my name is Tom Brady, so that people wouldn't know he was famous. And here we are, 40 years later, He actually was probably using a name that became more famous than his name ever was. And may that be what our life is like as well. May we, in advance, take on the name Christ, not being the Christ ourselves, just like Terry Bradshaw was not Tom Brady, but taking on the name of Christ, being a Christian, knowing what we're getting ourselves into, but knowing that he is the ultimate famous one that we will make known. So we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper, uh, going to the Lord's Supper and taking communion in just a moment. We're going to be singing one song and praying a prayer of confession in advance of that. So as we prepare ourselves for that, um, let's keep this mindset uh, together. So let me say a brief prayer and we'll turn to sing together. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to take your Lord's Supper, would you be preparing our hearts even now? We are nothing without you. We are nothing without your blood that was shed for us. So Lord, as we sing, may we remember that reality. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.